0: Thanks for tuning in to the Glossy Beauty Podcast. I'm your host, Priya Rao, and here with me today is Michelle Brett, the CEO of Ren Skincare. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you, Priya. I'm so excited to be here today and
1: really have this amazing conversation that I've been looking forward to for such a long time. Thanks for having
0: me. Michelle, we're so excited to have you because I feel like when we had dinner a couple of months ago, I think it was right when I got back from maternity leave, I was like, "Oh, we have so much to talk about, and we have to talk about it on our show." But before we kind of get started with with Ren specifically, I'd love to hear how you found your way into beauty. Because if I remember correctly, you know, you were a New York City kid, yeah, and you know, it wasn't necessarily obvious, even though you were in New York and you had all these options in terms of career and you saw lots of different creatives, um, but it wasn't necessarily a natural all transition. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, my story is, um, is
1: definitely not, I guess, traditional in how I got into beauty, because uh, my, I think my life in many ways was not necessarily, it didn't necessarily turn out the way I thought it would when I was a kid growing up in New York City. Um, you know, I come from a family of blue collar workers, really just focused on, you know, uh, you know, working hard, work ethic, making sure you can take care of yourself And, you know, education and higher education and a real career path was never something that as a child that was really instilled in me. And growing up in New York City, that's kind of the same way the concrete jungle treats kids if you, in a way, um, because it is all about hustling in one way or another. And for myself growing up, it was very much like I had to take care of myself. I had to, you know, get a job. I had my first job when I was 11 years old. Um, you know, if I wanted anything out of the norm, it was very much about me taking care of myself. And, um, you know, with that, it was, it was about me learning and being able to advance in every aspect of my my life as it would relate to really being able to take care of myself from a financial perspective it wasn't driven by passion um, but as I started to learn and grow in and in, in my confidence level throughout my life um, I realized that what I do like is actually servicing people and um, and really where my passion was in was in customer service and hospitality so my dream sort of became to work somehow in the hospitality world, whether that was, you know, through hotels or, you know, in in any other way. And I ended up in the travel industry when I was in my early 20s. I worked as a travel agent, and that was all about servicing customers. But what was great about that is it gave me the opportunity to travel the world as a young person without a lot of means. Um, And what I loved about that was, again, this engagement that I had with people. And the travels really did give me... um, um, sort of a passion to, you know, be more global, I guess, to speak, and learn more about communities. And, um, and with that, beauty comes along hand-in-hand with that. Um, as, a, as a customer-facing person, I always had to look my best. So I was never one that was very high maintenance, but I knew that I had to look, you know, be buttoned up, not only from, you know, my knowledge, but also from my appearance. And that led me down this, like, sort of, you know, discovery of beauty. And with that, my career change came in a very non-traditional way, so...
0: So, Michelle, your first job, I believe, in beauty was at L'Occitane in sales. Was that kind of a culmination of being abroad and being in travel and then finding your way to maybe more the customer service side of beauty? Yeah, exactly. Well,
1: actually, I started in retail. That's where this the sort of the jump from travel and hospitality was very basic of me working in retail. Prior to L'Occitane, I actually worked at Bath & Body Works, which was, that's a story for another day, um, but that was very very nineties of me to work at Bath and Body Works. But at that time, there really wasn't this prestige space. It was very much like mass or or luxury until some of these smaller brands started to come into the play. And most of them weren't, uh, you know, American brands. So I actually discovered L'Occitane through a friend of mine who introduced me to this amazing brand. And I took a chance and went and asked them if they would be willing to take me on to work at this company that had just arrived in the U.S. Um, So I started actually on the retail side with L'Occitane. And because they were growing in the U.S. and this prestige distribution network was really going, I mean, Sephora just had landed as well in the U.S. And QVC Beauty was a huge, um, you know, part of the prestige growth. And at that time, it was huge. So I started to do a little bit of everything at L'Occitane and ended up in this wholesale area where I was, you know. learning along with the brand, how to work with um, how to work with distributors, how to work with independents and how to work with Sephora and QVC at a time when they were they were everybody was new to this market.
0: You know, it's so interesting to hear your story, Michelle, because I mean, nowadays and I say this probably too much on the show. But, you know, nowadays, you know, people find their spot on social media or they're an influencer or they went and got their MBA. And from what I understand, you know, obviously this job and your Bath at Body Works job led you to, you know, your career in beauty. And you were at, most recently before Ren were at Living Proof and literally had every role there from yeah. sales to marketing to, I mean, you did everything. And we rarely hear of these born and bred beauty people that come from the retail space. Could you talk a little bit about that, about how it became like a career path for you, especially at Living Proof?
1: Yeah, absolutely. When I, when I had the experience at L'Occitane, what, what was really unlocked for me is that I realized at some point, that I knew a lot more than A, I gave myself credit for, and B, that a lot of other people who had been classically trained knew as well, because it was a very niche time where, again, these smaller brands were coming in. Prestige Beauty was being built. Sephora was just landing on the scene. They have five stores. When they launched. they have them a- over 600 now. Um, and and between Sephora and QVC really and building this beauty, I realized that I I had a lot of knowledge that I could share and that people were really hungry for. So, where Loxaton led me actually is I kind of made the leap out of Loxaton into this consulting world because I had contacts reaching out to me saying, "Hey, we want to get into Sephora. Hey, we want to sell on QVC. We heard you're the person. And so for, you know, about 18 months to two years, I did consulting for very small brands who were trying to sort of make it in this industry. And unfortunately, many of them didn't because it's so challenging, as you know. Um, and, you know, but what that did was allow me to build contacts that were, again, looking to grow their business in a non-conventional way where they didn't have a lot of experts. So, I was able to, in between L'Occitane and um, Living Proof, work with a lot of brands in beauty, whether it was color brands or hair care brands or skincare brands. And then I was introduced to the founders of Living Proof through this same network. And they were looking for somebody who knew how to build and grow a brand at Sephora and at QVC. And so I came on board actually as a consultant for the first six months. This was before the brand. Brand launched. It was before the brand wasn't actually even called Living Proof. It was the working name um, for the for the company, which is very biotech um, of Living Proof to be behind like closed doors with a different name. Um, and within the first six months, we had made such incredible strides and had such interest from retailers and really consumers with starting this buzz that there was no other place that I wanted to be than to build this brand uh, in the in you know in the industry. So
0: and you were there for about 14 years yeah. correct <laughs> through the through the Unilever acquisition and all of that. Yes. Correct? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, obviously I can understand why, you know, a CEO role might be attractive at brand another Unilever brand, but how did that come about and now being in the seat for I believe 6 months, you know, what what did you say your first order of business was? Yeah,
1: yeah, that's a great question because I had a laundry list coming in and I had to narrow that down pretty quickly. Um, but yeah, I think you know working at Living Proof and being able to work in an environment, in a startup environment that had such a great group of people that were very like minded and very passionate about delivering delivering results and growing a brand the right, you know, with ethics and morals um, because we all had that and we were acquired by. Unilever in 2017. And when the Unilever team, um, the Prestige team specifically, started to work with us, um, I recognized a lot of the things that motivate me in the team behind the prestige division. And that really drove me to remain within this organization and want to grow with them as this prestige portfolio grew. Um, The story of Ren is really funny, because um, one of my first conversations with Vasiliki, who is the head of Unilever Prestige, was about the other brands in the portfolio. And I told her, as of now, because there's many other brands that have come into the fold, the two brands that I love the most in this portfolio are Living Proof and Wren. And I had fallen in love with Wren in 2002 in London. And I just the, the brand to me has always been a brand that has been differentiated, has had, you know, a niche but a large niche uh consumer to serve, has had such a strong purpose that it almost the full circle moment for me was this opportunity coming from Vasiliki um you know 5 years after the acquisition of Living Proof.
0: So tell me about Ren, because, you know, I feel like, and this is an outsider's perspective, obviously, but it's such an incredible brand. It was one of the first brands that Unilever purchased. I believe it was the second in the Prestige portfolio. Um, It was early to sustainability. It was early to clean. But, you know, in the years since, it seems to me that, like, those messages, especially the sustainability messages, have overtaken, say, how great the product is and how... Um, the U.S. consumer interacts with the product. So tell me a little bit about like, you know, is that because it's still like known as a British brand or is that because, you know, you felt like that there's something new that needs to be done?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think it relates to um, one of your questions I didn't actually answer, which is sort of my first, you know, my first few weeks or months at at REN, what were my orders of priority? And the first one was really understanding the brand because you're 100% right in that even from myself as a consumer, Consumer, I saw the evolution of this brand really change from something was very focused on sensitive skin and natural and clean to going into this very and a natural evolution into sustainability because it is conscious, um, a very conscious brand, but it, it almost went a little bit too far to that side where the message became about all of the efforts in packaging and not necessarily showcasing the efficacy of the brand and what the point of difference is. And, you know, the brand made a zero waste pledge to be zero waste packaging by January 23. The pledge was made before I, I got here. And when I arrived, the pledge was complete. And now it's like, what's the, na- now that we had this pledge, what's next for the brand? And it really is making sure that our brand focus is our point of difference, which sustainability is one part of that. And I say to the team all the time, zero waste pledge we made. The biggest waste is somebody buying a product and throwing it in the trash because they actually don't know what it is. So the biggest opportunity for me was going back over the last 20 years, speaking to the founders, speaking to the people that work for the company for many years at many different stages, speaking to our product development team and research and development team and listening to the data and the customer information that we had. So I can truly understand what is resonating now, where our opportunities are and help to build
0: where we want to be in the future. Michelle, what are those other priorities? Because, you know, we we talked about the zero waste pledge and what you're doing with sustainability, but there is also, you know, the clean portion of it, which is still kind of tracking here in the U.S. and abroad. Sensitive, which has been a big theme at Sephora with other brands like Tower 28 in the makeup space. And then there's just product and marketing and awareness. And, you know, so what do you, if, if, if a new customer came to you and said, what's Ren all about, what would you say? Yeah, the
1: priorities for the brand is really being clear in the way that we are communicating our brand to consumers. Right now, we're using everything in our toolbox to be able to grow our consumer base. But the reality is, is that what we need to do is share with consumers what our true point of difference is, which is a clean brand that is formulated for sensitive skin. And sensitive skin is a broad umbrella, but the reality is is that sensitive skin is something that we all suffer from. And so our job is to show people what sensitive skin is at any given moment and how our products can can work on sensitive skin, not irritate the skin, but also deliver benefits beyond just not irritating the skin. And that's the efficacy part that the teams are focused on now in refining our real true position um, to
0: consumers. So, you know, that's really interesting to me, Michelle, because I feel like, you know, there's so much more education going on. I mean, I think the consumer has more education at their fingertips, you know, whether it's TikTok or the internet or, you know, any social media channel. But at the same time, there's a lot of misinformation. You know, I think, you know, what what's going on in TikTok is hilarious because then you're seeing things being used for the wrong uses and then there's this whole rise of derM talk or dermatologists are coming in and being like, No, that That's not what you're supposed to do. So I'm wondering like how you're slicing and dicing that education. Like, is it on these channels? Is it with experts, germs? Like, because it can get quite convoluted. And that's me saying this, and I'm in this industry. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. And it's a beauty junkie. And also in the industry,
1: I 100% concur. And I think that's that's something that we as a brand and the teams have to be very disciplined on because one of the things that, you know, we don't want to do and sometimes can fall victim to I think many brands can is trying to do everything trying to make sure you're part of a trend trying to make sure you're part of every conversation and that can dilute things across the board so for us it is really we have clinical tests on our products we work with dermatologists we formulate with very specific um, intentions from an ingredient perspective to an efficacy perspective and you know we have to stay true to what our sh- what our tests show and what our results are and not necessarily try to do everything there. Now, there are TikTok influencers and people who pick up our products, like everyone else, and find a new and exciting use for it. And we've seen success in that. And sometimes there's an unlock there that we didn't even know was a possibility. We take that and then go back and actually do the clinical tests to make sure that if we, as a brand, are going to say this is a way that you're going to see benefits from our product, then we'll go ahead and talk about that. Um, and in terms of like dermatologists as well, it's it's very true. We have. I think this really interesting time in the beauty industry and skincare specifically where there are derm brands and then there are brands that are partnering with derms that might have conflicting information. Um, and I think more now than the, than ever, because there is this desire from consumers for transparency, that transparency has sometimes led itself to, uh, you know, to, to confusion. Um, and so how we you know, manage that is really just finding our space and staying true to that space and not trying to serve what we actually can't serve. But it is a constant conversation that we're having with ourselves to ensure that, A, we're not losing out on a conversation, but B, is it a conversation that is even relevant to us? Because I guarantee if it's not, there's another conversation that is very relevant to us happening right now.
0: Talk to me a little bit about the aesthetician piece, because I think that people may not know this, but you know, in- Europe and in the UK, you know that's a big part of your business. You know the 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 loop back to the spa and the esthetician, and I don't know necessarily if people in the U.S. know that as much. Yeah, yo, know, you're 100 right. There is definitely you know the brands in the UK and Europe is is
1: is more established than it is in the U.S. Um, so there is there there are a lot of sort of more uses and more general knowledge about the brand than there is here, which allows us to bring in some more aspects of the brands um, than we would potentially in a market where we're really focusing on a, a very uh, a specific positioning for ourselves. So the esthetician piece of it is more about the experience of Ren. One of the benefits of Ren as a clean brand is that it actually um, you know, has this very... Um, uh, aromatic experience. It's an experiential product, which a lot of brands in the clean space aren't. That you know, they don't have you know a pleasant smell or a pleasant texture. We formulate to make sure that you're actually enjoying the use there. And how we basically bring that to consumers in several areas is through the spa space, where we're not a traditional um, esthetician brand. We have esthetician on um, on our our staff, and we work with certain spas in mostly in the UK and and in Europe, but we don't have a back bar program where basically, um, you know, you could go into a spa and have a treatment quite easily. It is something that we've been talking about, but I think from this consumer piece first and getting into the hands of consumers so that they can feel the joy of the products and the beauty of the products is the, um, is the first goal for us.
0: Talk to me about who that customer is because I mean I think people have a misconception, you know, it's it seems like it could be an older consumer because Ren has been around for so long, but then at the same time I look at social sometimes and I'm like, "Oh, these are like Gen Zers." Yeah. Yeah. It's it's, you know what, and that is you know, for a brand that is as
1: established as we are, we have a we do have a mix, and especially as a brand that's over twenty years old and has had a quite a large foothold in the UK, their whole market, um, we do have an older consumer who knows us for twenty years, and then their kids. So we're we're seeing that more in the in the UK market than we are in the US market. In the US market, it, it's it, it it is in the eighteen to thirty five year old range that we're seeing that, um, uh, and what we're seeing is that our target consumer is someone who, not surprisingly, cares about the environment, is looking for purpose, and looking for transparency. And we offer that. And where we are not hitting the mark 100%, which is what we talked about, is really this driving that efficacy and driving the results. And so from a marketing perspective, we have this toolbox to use to show people how efficacious our products are. The claims, the clinicals, the before and afters we need to talk about that more so that we can get those consumers to who are who are not necessarily sustainable first but want to, you know, have products that are efficacious and and get that new consumer in
0: there but our age range is about 18 to 35 in the US. Talk to me a little bit about what's happening at retail. I mean, you are a retail junkie. You know this, you know what's happening in stores and you've known that since the beginning of your career. So I imagine, you know, that store unlock is very important and you know you're in Sephora you're in other doors that have a big footprint so what's happening with the associate there because that's so much about the the path to purchase in beauty
1: yeah absolutely um it is a huge priority for us to win in that space and you know we we have had some struggles there in the past i think obviously covid has really lent itself to have some challenges and for a brand that has still a small footprint in the U.S. It is really about driving that awareness and excitement. And for the past several years, the awareness and the excitement has been focused on digital. But there is a desire from consumers and a desire from younger consumers to have experiences. So we are investing in bringing our brand to life more in Sephora stores, partnering with them to make sure that our brand stands out more and is showcasing our positioning and being able to staff the store with our experts um, to uh, engage with consumers, to educate consumers, to have fun with consumers and show them, you know, and let them try the product so that they can really bring it to life. So it's a work in progress. Um, we're not there yet in terms of bringing that level of excitement, but we are partnering closely with Sephora as, you know, our premier partner from a retail perspective in the U.S. and Canada to bring that more to life in the, in the near future. We'll be
0: right back after this break. When you think about expanding that U.S. footprint, obviously, Sephora is, you know, it's, it's a race to the b- finish, I believe, between Sephora and Ulta, you know. But have you thought about other retailers here in terms of expansion? Or is it really about, you know, fixing or fine-tuning that Sephora experience before you go broader. Because, you know, a lot of the brands in the Unilever Prestige portfolio are Sephora brands. When you think about Tatcha, when you think about uh, Paula's Choice, which is recently going into Sephora, I mean, it seems like that is you know, your bread and butter or yeah. the portfolio is bread and butter.
1: Yeah. For, uh, y- yes. Uh, there, yes, there is um, a lot to be said about that. I think I come from, when I came from Living Proof, that business was very much Ulta and Sephora because it's a hair brand. So Ulta has a really strong footprint in the hair, um, uh, the, you know, with hair consumers, they're very trusted for many years with hair and Sephora is growing in that category. Obviously the entire category is growing. For Ren, because we need awareness, we need awareness and and find tuning of our positioning to our consumers, Um, we want to keep our footprint small for the next few years and really partner to bring the brand to life. And as a partner, um, Sephora is the innovator, Sephora is the brand builder. They can take a niche brand and really tell that story. And working with them is really important for us to be able to do that before we start expanding our footprints into a wider um, distribution network. So really, our focus is is going to be um, a a health healthy, but specific
0: retail distribution, plus our D2C
1: business.
0: Michelle, I love how candid and honest you are on this show, because I feel like there's so many people in the past who very much, you know, they stick to their party lines, you know, they stick to, they stick, they're on message. And I'm just wondering, you know, skincare is is been going through beauty rather beauty and skincare has been going through such a rapid evolution i mean people are launching brands all the time it's it's kind of hard to keep up yeah and you know i'm wondering you know you are still an indie brand you know in the sense that you're not you know as old as estee lauder but at the same time you've been around for 20 years and there's so much newness happening all the time how do you kind of you know, play in that, whether it's through product or through marketing, and then also be like, you know, we've been around the block for a bit. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that that's we have a lot of learnings over the last 20 years. And
1: it's and it's really what I've been spending a lot of my time is, is understanding those learnings, learning about the consumer, also learning about the people on our team. The mo- first and foremost, who we are as a culture and a company is so important for me, especially because I'm in New York and the, the, you know, the majority of the team are in the UK. So I'm a, I'm a Virtual hybrid CEO, which is quite interesting across time zones and you know continents. Um, but I think you know we're utilizing what we have to really take the the beauty of our brand and modernize it um, slow healthy growth is the key for, for this brand. It is still a small indie brand. And within the portfolio, it's on the smaller size of the brands there, um, you know, in this market in the, in the U.S. So we have a real opportunity to bring a new consumer in that, but not, you know, with our point of difference, but not, you know, run before we, you know, crawl again. So for me, it's going back to basics. It's, again, opening that toolbox, modernizing that toolbox. When I think about the positioning of sensitive skin, what sensitive skin 20 years ago meant was, you would go and buy something or get something from a derm. And it really wasn't efficacious. It was just about fixing that irritation. But now sensitive skin is about a multitude of challenges that we all face. And ultimately, sensitive skin is the minimum litmus test that we should all be doing from skincare to make sure that we're not irritating the skin, we're not damaging the skin further. And then from there, we formulate to get real benefits and and results. And so for us, it's really being able to control um, our distribution network to be able to get the message right. And the message being right is also about the differentiation because there is. You know, there are, you know, brands popping up, you know, every day, all day long. And, you know, we, you see it. I can't even imagine in your space what you see. Um, but we do have the benefit of having 20 years, plus the benefit of having not only 20 years as a brand, but also the expertise within the portfolio that we can capitalize on. So the learnings we get from, that I get from my sister brands, so to speak, and the teams there is invaluable.
0: Would you describe a little bit about what your team kind of looks like? I know that there's some people in California. There's some in the UK. How big is the Ren team?
1: Globally, the Ren team um, that that are dedicated to Ren is about 70 people. It's really tiny. Um, the majority of the, that team is in the UK, and then in the UK we have sort of a shared resource hub, like a distribution network, um, where we have probably another 30 people that work on multiple brands. Um, you know, and the majority of them are in the UK. Then there's a team of, you know, seven to 10 people in the U.S., and that's really our distribution center team and our, um, you know, U.S. uh, accounts management team and our D2C team. So me being in New York, it's me and our CMO who is currently on maternity leave. So I don't, you know, and I don't have a replacement. So I'm kind of jumping in. It was a good opportunity for me to jump in and really understand what's going on. Um, But uh, I kind of am the liaison now between the time zones. There's an eight hour span between the UK and, um, and LA. Um, and so my goal for these past six months has been to create a sense of togetherness, you know, in the, and it's, even though we're, we've been on zoom for I don't know, two and a half years, feels like a lifetime at this point, there is still this, you know, there's a missing piece that you don't get from being in person. So I am, try, I am working on bringing people together more. I've had people from the UK come and do market visits and meetings and really just trying to make human connections. But I think the, the, the functions of business can work no matter what time zones we are. I realized that quickly. Um, but really the passion in building the brand and understanding the different, the global
0: markets is really about making that connection. So. What's the reception been like? Because I know that Unilever has been historically pretty progressive when it comes to in and out of the office. I know here in the U.S., you know, the New Jersey space that people don't even sit at the same desks if they don't have to. You know, so I'm wondering, like, you know, having a CEO in the U.S. and running a team in the U.K. and then other people are in California and your CMO is on maternity leave. I mean, have people just been like, this is the new world order or people, or do you find it challenging?
1: Yeah, I think um, a little bit of both, honestly. Um, You know, for me, the biggest um, opportunity for me was to spend time with the team in London. And unfortunately, when I started, so did Omicron. So, you know, every time I tried to go to, starting actually back in December, um, over the past six months, I um, planned to be there one week out of the month and really haven't been able to do that. But I'm Starting that actually next week. So I'll be in the UK one week out of the month with the teams. And that week is really meant to have this collaboration. And some of the LA team comes out as well when I'm there. Um, And again, when we're having market visits in the US, some of the UK team comes here. So the intent of that month out of the week is to really have FaceTime and to have valuable conversations, not to sit in a room while we're all on Zoom, but to really make the most of the time that we have together um, and, and kind of build on that energy that, that allows us to then you know, work hybrid and get what we need to get done with this infusion of sort of solidarity, I guess, um, and culture um, throughout the rest of the month.
0: You mentioned a second ago that your CMO is on maternity leave, and you know I imagine that's it's an interesting place to be in because then you get to evaluate and run marketing the way that you kind of see fit. But just as there are so many brands coming to market, there are so many more channels. You know, I feel like everybody has moved over to TikTok from Instagram and Facebook. I mean, and we saw that trend, but now live streaming on TikTok isn't really happening anymore. There is Discord, there's Twitch. Like, what are you prioritizing? And not to mention, not to mention, it seems like out of home is back and TV ads are at. So, (laughs) what are you thinking when it comes to your marketing mix and the balance between performance marketing, store marketing? Yeah, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It
1: is a, 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 a crazy time because every time you think you've got it figured out, there's another, you know, another channel or another, you know, loop that you have to jump through that you thought you were on this path. And, you know, it, it just hasn't taken off, but it is for us. It's about, you know, it's focusing. Um, we can't take everything on. So as much as I'd love to really be in the metaverse and, you know, you know, walking down this NFT path or in Twitch, it is, it just isn't right for the brand right now. And, you know, focusing on, the fundamentals of how we're reaching consumers, um, you know, those things are emerging and they will hopefully be there. Um, But there are still so many platforms that the majority of people are discovering brands on. And that's really where our focus is. Um, So obviously, you know, in this world, digital is digital first. That's how people discover brands. Um, And we're continuing to focus on that from a DTC perspective, from obviously social um, and, um, you know, social meaning mostly TikTok and Instagram. We're not really testing any new any new devices out right now, but at in home is actually repeatedly popping up as an as an area of opportunity. So you know, I'd say that we explore things to see if they're viable for our business and if it's worth changing course right now. And that's kind of how we're going to manage it in real time at this point.
0: <laughs> and I guess the last question I have for you, Michelle, which is a bigger picture question, <laughs> is how are you feeling about the economy? You know, I mean. I feel like every day there's another headline about it's happening. I mean, we've been in this inflationary period for a while. It doesn't seem to be getting better. Like, what are your thoughts on both, you know, what you're investing in internally and what you want to go after? And then also what the consumer response is going to be. Because I think that like there's been a lot of headlines, at least in my opinion, that say like, oh, everybody's going to be buying beauty forever. We've been indoors. And I do agree that the beauty customer might be more resilient and is that simple luxury. But how much beauty can we all have? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, it's definitely something that if you ask, like, what keeps us up at night, that's probably one of the things. And it is something that we really don't have a tremendous amount of control in because it's day to day, you know, the news that comes out, you know, it's like, do I stop shopping or do I even, you know, as, as a, a gainfully employed person, I'm very privileged that I don't have to make those choices. I still think about making those choices because you don't know. So, you know, you know, further down that, you know, and, and across that line, I know consumers are making those choices. So, you know, the cost of everything is, is more now. And I do think that there is, a resiliency in which we're lucky to have for sure a resiliency to this. Um, and, you know, who our consumer is. Seemingly is in the more resilient category. Where I think we might have challenges, you know, in the near future is really that new customer. So we're really going after that new customer because our awareness is, again, in the US is quite low. We've gained so much traction in the past, you know, six months to a year in terms of our reach. Um, I think in earned media in the US, we went from like number 56 to number 24 in the last four months, and we're number one in the UK in earned media. So we are getting a new consumer. The stickiness of that consumer in the recession is really where the question remains. So for us, it's focusing on the retention and understanding that you know the of the customers we have. Who is the most likely to, you know, how much of that can we keep and feel confident about? And it is a big unknown. So, you know, sometimes we, we're going to have to, we might have to make some choices about where we spend our money, Um, you know, from a brand's perspective um, and put things on pause. But luckily we haven't had the, to make those choices at this stage, but it is something that weighs in us. So from my perspective, I try to control what I can control. And I try not to get people to think too far in the future at the same time of being strategic, which can be challenging. Um, but, you know, when I think about how we can uh, improve our, you know, our cost of goods so that we can be, you know, controlling our prices a little bit more, that's an exercise that we have going on. Can we, you know, buy further in advance of what, you know, You know, a bigger quantity of bottles so that we can save money and pass that on to the consumers. Those are some of the things that we're we're doing to try and hopefully offset that. But the reality is, is that we, you know, we all know it's a challenge. So
0: um, we do what we do uh,
1: best to control what we can control at this point. (laughs)
0: I imagine this has a lot to do with you know being part of a bigger company but you know these price hikes and you know supply chain issues it seems like everybody is raising prices which I think is a really scary proposition. But I mean, are you thinking about that yet? Or are you thinking about more promos or more buy one, get one free? Like, I mean, it seems like that's stuff that we're all going to have to be thinking about. Yeah. Yeah. We definitely
1: have many conversations about it. I think that, you know, we've actually walked away from promos. The brand was quite promotional in the last couple of years and we've walked away from that. We've seen, you know, that actually help us in the long run now, you know, or I should say as of now in the long run, will we have to revisit that likely? Um, but we'll revisit it as it relates to the brand's in our priorities from a longer term perspective. I we do have, I think the benefit of you know being part of a portfolio is that, but we also have to sustain ourselves as a business. And so we can't always say, Oh yeah, we've got Unilever, don't worry about it, because that's not how we operate and that's surely not how long-term, they're probably not, right? Um, so they, you know, the, the love for the brand is there, but, you know, the brand needs to be sustainable um, as a brand. And, you know, the choices that we make, again, trying to save those, save on costs, um, you know, we will we will work towards remaining that. Um, but we did, like every other brand, have to take a price increase. Um, and a lot of that is related to, yes, supply chain. Um, thankfully, we actually haven't had supply chain issues because all of our products are made in the UK. Um, um, where the supply chain issues come from us is in the sustainability space, because we use bottles and, pa- and jars and packaging that, you know, we're, we're uh, the biggest fish, even though it's and in a very small pond of being able to resource these things. So if you want to be a sustainable zero waste brand, it costs a lot of money. And, you know, and I, I don't, as a consumer myself and as, you know, a sustainably um, led brand leader... I don't want the cons- to have to put the onus always on the consumer to do better. It's up to brands to do that. And that does cost more, but it also takes some of the complexity and guilt out of our hands as consumers that we have to think about. How, what do we do with this recycling bottle? Can I recycle it? Can I not recycle it? You know, what do we- It's so overwhelming for a consumer that if we take those, uh, you know, that complexity away from them, it might cost a little bit more, but it will, in the end, be beneficial for all of us. So...
0: You have a lot on your plate, Michelle. And talk about like being a new CEO in such a dynamic time. Thank you so much for being here and being so candid. I mean, I feel like everybody should like listen to this episode because it's just so real, which is what we all need to hear more of. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Priya. Um, I, I love having conversation like
1: this. I really appreciate the time and the opportunity to connect today.
0: Thank you so much for listening to the Glossy Beauty Podcast. Tune in next week for another episode. And of course, that means if you haven't subscribed, please hit that button.